Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, New Media and Video Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Associate Editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air. Today, I'm here with my co-hosts, Micah Hill and Eve Feinberg. Hello, Micah. Hello, Eve. Hi, Kurt. Good morning. Hi, Kurt. Good to be here. Well, we're going to take on the Fertility and Sterility November 2020 issue, Volume 114, Number 5. So I get the privilege of starting this morning with the views and reviews section, always a highlight of the editions. So we have a forward-thinking collection of papers in the views and reviews section this month. Dr. Zev Rosenwax and his team, including Dr. Haria Suliha, Zanovic, and Kurchow, as well as Dr. Hickman, discuss artificial intelligence and reproductive medicine, a fleeting concept or a wave of the future. In this series of articles, they discuss the idea that artificial intelligence is, and soon will be, a part of reproductive medicine. Artificial intelligence will become more objective, more accurate, and easier to use, perhaps resulting in greater precision, standardization, and automation. As described in this series of articles, artificial intelligence has already reached the embryology lab, but also has the potential to reach patients directly also. Dr. Zanovic and Rosenwax describe the emphasis of AI in the embryology lab. The goal is to find the quote-unquote best embryo for transfer using large-scale data, including things like time-lapse photography, still embryo images, or hallmarks of kinetic embryo development. Um, the next article, Dr. Hier Rasuliha, and my apologies for mispronouncing your name. I'm sure it's, your article is much better than my pronunciation of your name. And colleagues, Dr. Elemento, it's argued that computer analysis may establish a more precise diagnosis and therefore help find the best fit for treatments for individual patients. Said another way, precision medicine may have reached reproductive medicine. Dr. Kirchow and colleagues evaluate how artificial intelligence may help predictive models in reproductive medicine in terms of our practice, eliminating, for example, some of our own human lapses, such as bias or emotions or fatigue or irrational decision-making. They note that this may actually increase our ability to see a greater volume of patients. Perhaps my favorite article is one because I know very little about. Dr. Hickman and his colleagues evaluate the use of something called blockchain technology to enable large global and diverse data with efforts to overcome data insufficiency and potential data bias. Blockchain can be used to set up global data sets with no ownership that can maintain and utilize by communities not dissimilar, for example, to Bitcoin. The use of such universal generalizable data sets can help us in many ways, including reducing the cost of innovation, validation, and implementation of technology. And finally, the final article, entitled Predictive Modeling and Reproductive Medicine, Where the Future Will Take Us, reviews the possibility that technology to help us in our daily lives, such as including complex data capturing, electronic witnessing, digital quality control, or evaluation of, again, large-scale data sets. Now, overall, even Micah, this was a very thought-provoking, forward-thinking way of using artificial intelligence today or in the near future in our distance. I have a feeling my job description is going to change quite a bit. I'm not sure I'm going to be out of a job, 
but I think I'm going to need to go back to school to learn some of this. What do you guys think? Yeah, I completely agree. I think especially with daily decision making and even embryo selection, I think our field is on the cusp of changing. This change is definitely coming. We're going to see more and more papers on this. I think we all need to get fluent in how to speak the language so we can look at these studies uh, critically and understand if they can benefit our patients. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's move on. The next article is uh, on Inklings. Thanks, Kurt. This is actually a really interesting article that the title is Premature Progesterone Rise as a Trigger of PCOS. And this was written, and again, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing the name correctly, but it was written by uh, Dezorteff in addition to Dr. Pellissier and Dr. Diamond. And I would encourage everyone to read this. I really loved the thought process. The bottom line is the origin of PCOS is not well understood. The diagnosis relies on the end organ effects of anovulation, hirsutism, and PCO appearing ovaries. But the underlying physiological mechanisms that lead to this syndrome have not yet been fully mapped out. And what the authors do in this inkling is they propose a causatory mechanism for PCOS that's really fascinating to think about. They start by explaining that one of the central features of PCOS is a sustained elevation of LH, which leads to hyperandrogenism and then the other defining presentations. But what they do is they describe how that sustained LH happens. And they really write about the ovary that is jam-packed with follicles that is causative for the remainder of the syndrome and not vice versa. And they write about the abortive growth of small follicles in the ovary, the size of which correlates with around day six of stimulation. And what's so different about this paradigm is they propose that progesterone and not estrogen is thought to be the agent that acts upon the hypothalamus. And so in this theory, progesterone acts upon the hypothalamus to start the GnRH signaling pathway that leads to an LH surge. So starting from the beginning, here's the pathway that the authors propose. PCOS begins in an otherwise healthy fertile woman who has a high AMH. There's a large number of follicles. These in turn each produce a small amount of progesterone. They propose that the hypothalamic threshold for ovulation trigger is a progesterone level of 0.5 nanograms per ml. And so when this level gets crossed, the hypothalamus releases GnRH, which in turn releases FSH and LH. So in women who have a lot of antral follicles around the time of puberty, when the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis is maturing, the contribution of these many antral follicles leads to a progesterone level that's around one nanogram per ml. And if we accept that the threshold for trigger is 0.5, then what happens is there's a premature GnRH surge and subsequent premature LH-FSH surge to these many follicles that are small and not quite ready for ovulation. So essentially, it's a failed trigger. And once this failed trigger has taken place, then there are several antral follicles that persist these keep producing progesterone, which then leads to a sustained LH release. Over time, the progesterone receptors in the hypothalamus become desensitized. And so in order for ovulation to occur in these women, the progesterone would need to be lower at some point to allow for selection of a dominant follicle. Only when the dominant follicle gets selected do the smaller follicles stop growing and producing progesterone. 
The hypothalamus then regains sensitivity as the dominant follicle grows and progesterone rises. It can then trigger the release of GnRH. And so the progesterone paradigm, rather than the estrogen feed-forward paradigm, can explain how clomid, letrozole, and ovarian drilling work. Clomid occupies estrogen receptors at the level of the hypothalamus. And so without access to these receptors, estrogen cannot induce progesterone receptors, so they don't become sensitized. Letrozole acts by reducing circulating estrogen, and progesterone receptors are similarly not induced and similarly not desensitized. And drilling reduces follicles and reduces progesterone levels. And so this also explains why many women with PCO become ovulatory as they age. The lower burden of eggs within the ovary keeps the progesterone levels low, and the hypothalamus loses that desensitization and once again can respond to progesterone. So I thought this was amazing, and it makes so much sense, and I'm really excited to see where things progress from here. That's an amazing review. I mean, that really challenges the way we think about PCOS. I, I agree. I encourage people to read it. I had to read it, and then I actually had to draw it all out to look at the pathway, and it took me a while to digest it, but once you really think about it, it's really brilliant. Great. Thank you, Eve. So next, we're going to move on to this month's seminal contribution. We know that nutritional and lifestyle behaviors have been linked, at least in some studies, to reproductive outcomes. In this month, a study titled The First Effective M-Health Nutrition and Lifestyle Coaching Program for Subfertile Couples Undergoing In Vitro Fertilization Treatment, a Single-Blinded Multicenter, RCT, Oosting and colleagues from the Netherlands investigate the effectiveness of a web-based lifestyle coaching program in subfertile patients. This was an RCT with both allocation concealment and the investigators were blinded. Patients were randomized to a regular versus a light version of these authors' web-based lifestyle coding program. The regular version received specific suggestions for the patients to improve their habits based upon their questionnaires, whereas the control group did not receive the feedback to their questionnaires. The questionnaires were administered at 6, 12, 18, and 24 weeks, and the primary outcome was a reduction in dietary risk score. The intervention had a greater improvement in their dietary risk scores compared to the light version or control version. However, the pregnancy rates were similar, 62% with the intervention and 67% in the control group. The authors conclude that wider implementation of this web-based coaching program would be beneficial for infertile patients. The commentary from Meldrum et al. focuses on the limitations of the current study. It wasn't really possible to blind subjects when you're doing a lifestyle study, and this may lead to some reporting biases. Further, the reduction in the dietary risk score, while significant, was one out of a nine-point scale, which may not be clinically important. They also point out that there was no difference in pregnancy, with the intervention group actually having a 5% lower live birth rate. Overall, I think this is a very interesting study, but it's similar to many other dietary and lifestyle studies in that it shows improvement in some lifestyle and weight factors, but not on fertility or pregnancy outcomes themselves. So what do you think the take-home message on that is, Micah? Do you think that this is really going to be an important intervention or just an adjuvant? I see it as an adjuvant. I don't think they are even close to demonstrating a benefit in the outcome that most of our patients are most focused on, uh, which is pregnancy. And I don't think a one-point reduction in this risk score uh, was, was maybe clinically relevant. So certainly a tool that should continue to be investigated, in my mind, not ready for mainstream yet.
Well, we also have a, another interesting article in this month's journal. It's a throwback in a section called Fertility and Sterility 50 Years Ago. This piece entitled The Lion King Ovulation Induction, offered by Olivia Carpinello and Alan DeCherney. This is a short but interesting piece highlighting the impact of two articles written 50 years ago and presented in Fertility and Sterility by Dr. Melvin Tremore. The first article, entitled Timing of Ovulation by Rapid Luteinizing Hormone Assay, describes a two-hour assay, which was a vast improvement over the five-day assay that was used at the time. The authors were able to use this new rapid assay on two patients with variable cycle lengths that determine the appropriate time for insemination. Clearly, the ability to use LH levels to time insemination has revolutionized reproductive medicine, and this technique is currently used for the timing of insemination and embryo transfer even today. The second article highlighted in this short piece is entitled Estrogen Monitoring and Ovulation Induction. In this article, Dr. Tramer points out the association and the ability to use urinary estrogen excretion to help the timing and the dose of ATG trigger to safely tailor treatment of patients. As pointed out by the authors of this piece, this is an incredible advancement in the field. It was through this work, as well as communication directly with the FDA by Dr. Tramer, that allowed the drug human menopausal gonadotropin to be FDA approved. Where would we be without this drug today? Of note, this article is a tribute to Dr. Tramer's daughter, Julie Tramer, who directed the musical version of The Lion King. I would argue that these two articles contributed to reproductive medicine by Dr. Tramor is even a greater contribution than Dr. Tramor's daughter, despite the six Tony Awards. I'm not sure who is able to generate more happiness, those successfully treated for infertility or those who enjoyed seeing such a wonderful musical such as The Lion King. Let's all remember, however, either one, fame is fleeting, both in science and in the entertainment business. I love that. I'd love to make a joke about the circle of life, but I'm just not that funny. <laughs> um, this next article is the association between male infertility and male-specific malignancies, the systematic review and meta-analysis of the population-based retrospective cohort studies by Del Giudice and others. So recent studies have shown an association between impaired fertility and chronic diseases and mortality suggesting that semen quality may be a biomarker of overall male health. The authors note that there's been an increase in testicular cancer diagnosis with a simultaneous decline in semen quality in Western countries, but it's really unclear as to whether these are linked. Prostate cancer is the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in men, but society guidelines from Europe and America do not mention the impact of male reproductive health or semen quality on prostate cancer risk. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis that asked the following question. What is the relative risk of men presenting with male factor infertility to subsequently develop testicular or prostate cancer? They also looked at the pooled risk ratios for infertile and subfertile men. They performed a systematic review and analysis. The analysis was restricted to data collected from original articles that examined males greater than 18 years old, identified by outpatient claims with an infertility diagnosis, or those who showed up for semen analysis or semen preparation. And only those patients with a cancer diagnosis that was derived from a national cancer registry was included. Studies were considered eligible if the control population or the comparison population 
was age matched without infertility. There were a total of six studies in the review. Four were from the U.S. and two were from Europe. And all studies were retrospective comparing a population of subfertile or infertile males to a matched comparison group. Four studies evaluated the association between infertility and testicular cancer, and four examined the relationship with prostate cancer. So what did they find? Interestingly, they saw that there was a positive association with infertility and testicular cancer with a pooled relative risk of two. There was also a positive association with infertility and prostate cancer with a pooled relative risk of 1.68. And I think what's really important to note that while the relative risk is higher for infertile men, the absolute risk was still far below 1%. And I think it needs to be interpreted with a lot of caution. There was heterogeneity in both of these studies in types of populations, as well as in types of cancers and grades of cancers. Not all testicular cancers are the same and there's a wide variety of prostatic cancer as well. And so again, I think the take-home point in this is it's not quite ready for prime time to counsel patients that male infertility is a risk for future reproductive cancers, but at the very least, it should prompt a thorough GU examination in every male with male factor infertility and longitudinal follow-up care by a physician. So we have four articles in the assisted reproduction section, and I get the privilege of um, describing the first one. It's entitled Embryo Transfer Training and Fellowship, National Institutional Data. First author Dana McQueen and senior author our own Eve Feinberg from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. This is a two-part study that addresses a very important topic in our field. There has been a long-standing controversy regarding embryo transfer training. Some consider this a critical step in the IVF process that should be completed only by an attending experienced physician, a procedure too important to allow the effects of a quote-unquote learning curve. Others have stated that this procedure is no different than any other medical procedure, and our patients should understand that training is necessary, and that's the mission of our academic institutions. However, clearly the undertone has been that academic practices have been reluctant to train fellows to do transfers on live patients as it may disadvantage their practice compared to their competition. Private practices will disparage academic clinics for practicing on cash-paying patients. Conversely, academic practices fear any reduction in pregnancy rates that will be demonstrated nationally in the SART Coors database. Clearly, this is a conundrum. This study evaluates the current national practices and also looks at a cohort of transfers based on one institution's experience. So surveys were sent out to 51 REI fellowship programs and 142 fellows with a response rate of around 65% and 34% respectively. Additionally, a retrospective cohort was performed at Northwestern evaluating success rates of about 1,000 blastocyst transfers by five fellows and 10 attendings. Well, the first finding I think was not unexpected. There is clearly a striking difference between fellowship programs regarding how fellows are trained to perform embryo transfers on live patients. And it noted that nearly one half of all fellows had performed fewer than 10 embryo transfers. This is clearly a wake up call to the programs with fellows. Now to investigate the impact of whether this was a good or a bad idea in terms of limiting fellows transfers, this study stratified success rates by attending physicians and REI programs, one program. 
After adjusting for important aspects such as transfer technique and stylet use, there was no difference in pregnancy rate or live birth. In fact, the relative risk for live birth was a healthy null finding of 1.04. An accompanying reflection by doctors Roberts, Kreswick, and Shaw very eloquently described the findings and implications of this article. While, of course, limitations of any study can be found, including low response rate, this study adds to the dilemma of the high-stakes question as to whether trainees should be performing embryo transfers. My favorite part of the discussion was the eloquent clarification that embryo transfer, while very visible to the patient, is likely less important than many other factors, including embryo quality, laboratory conditions, which greatly affect the ultimate prognosis and success rate. So this controversy has been litigated in literature, most recently by Bill Sklaff, who strongly recommends that it is the duty to train our fellows professionally and adequately. Moreover, training embryo transfer is a requirement component of our fellowship training. Perhaps simulation will help, as it does in many other aspects of medicine. So, how this well-presented and positive data affects the controversy is still a little bit of a mystery to me. Art is still a very competitive medical field. But luckily, we have one of the authors of the paper on this podcast. Perhaps Eve can shed some comments and discussion on this paper and convince me otherwise. <laughs> Thank you, Kurt. Um, I can't think of another field in medicine where trainees do not perform all procedures. In the most complicated neurosurgeries, you have the neurosurgery residents performing complex neurosurgeries in plastics, where you also have a high degree of self-pay patients. You also have the plastics fellows performing complex procedures. And so it seems to me um, an unjust disadvantage that fellows don't get trained in embryo transfer. And really what our data showed was that if the fellow is adequately supervised by the attending physician, then success rates are truly no different. And so I often joke when I'm doing the ultrasound for the transfer to the patient, I'm the GPS, I'm the gamete positioning system, and I'm really guiding that fellow and teaching that fellow as he or she is doing the transfer and I think our data really speaks for itself that those transfers are equally successful. I couldn't agree more with you, Eve. I know that both you and I are passionate about this topic as program directors. We've also published data that shows our fellows attain the same success rate as our attendings after just 10 embryo transfers. We just say that our fellows on average have 100 transfers each, and we've been able to maintain a live birth rate above the SART average. So we actually have the embryo transfer simulator on loan this month, and we're doing some further research, so stay tuned. Yeah, I hope the embryo transfer simulator will help. I think it will basically just give us confidence that the fellows are better. I'm not really sure it's actually training them how to do a transfer, but we'll see. I think the next paper up, um, Dr. Feinberg will describe, talking about vitamin D. Thanks, Kurt. So this is, um, the title of this paper is How Vitamin D Levels Influence IVF Outcomes, Results of a Systematic Review in Meta-Analysis by Casalini and others. So this systematic review investigates whether serum vitamin D levels have an impact on IVF outcomes. And the biologic plausibility is that in the female reproductive system, Vitamin D has endocrine and paracrine functions, including regulation of genes involved in ovarian cell proliferation and also expression of genes involved in endometrial receptivity. 
Knockout mice with blocked vitamin D receptors have defective folliculogenesis and morphologic alterations of the uterus. So these data strongly suggest a role for vitamin D in reproductive function. What the authors did was they included published observational studies and categorized women into three groups, those who were deficient, defined as a vitamin D level of less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, those who were insufficient, which was 20 to 30, and those who were replete or greater than 30. There were 14 studies that were included in this meta-analysis with a total number of just over 4,300 participants. One of the flaws of the study was the timing of the vitamin D levels was not consistent. Some studies measured the vitamin D levels pre-cycle, some measured this pre-cycle months in advance, and some measured vitamin D levels at the time of ovulation trigger. The primary analysis was an evaluation of clinical pregnancy rate, ongoing pregnancy rate, live birth rate per woman, and miscarriage per pregnancy. And again, there was inconsistent evidence supporting a possible effect of vitamin D serum levels on the outcomes of IVF cycles. The primary analysis, and Kurt, I'm going to rely on you for some statistical help here, so I'm going to ask you a few questions, but listen to this. So the primary analysis showed higher clinical pregnancy rates and ongoing pregnancy or live birth rate in women with replete levels compared to those who were deficient or insufficient. However, when they did sensitivity analyses, these did not hold true. They couldn't draw meaningful causal conclusions between vitamin D and IVF outcomes despite the observed point estimates. So there are many factors in many studies that limit us from drawing firm conclusions. Timing of vitamin D levels and potential impact. If you check the vitamin D level at ovulation trigger, but then you do a subsequent FET, is this level still accurate? And how long beforehand was it drawn? What about the seasons in which the study is taking place? One thing upon which the authors only commented briefly, but I think is really important, is the race of the subjects. How does skin color influence vitamin D levels? And should the thresholds be the same in all women? So I think overall, the study asked more questions than it answered about the role of vitamin D in IVF outcomes, and further studies with more uniformity and timing and stratification by race are needed. But Kurt, I want to circle back as our statistician here. Can you talk just a little bit more about what is a sensitivity analysis and why is that particularly important in this type of a study? Sure. Thanks, Eve. I think we all have to remember when a study is conducted, it's a sample. It's not studying everybody. Um, statistics allow us to say, when we look at that data, was there differences that might be due to chance? But what if our sample wasn't really a true sample, if it was somehow biased? So a lot of people will conduct what's called a sensitivity analysis, which is saying, well, what if? What if the sample was older, or what if the sample was a different race? Do I still find the same answer? And it's a very important way of suggesting whether your answer is, is really the truth or whether you might have gotten it for spurious reasons. Now, I don't mean spurious from chance. I mean spurious from, like, you sampled the population the wrong way or you were studying the wrong people. So in this case, you want to look at, do you get a different answer when you do have a sensitivity? analysis, if you get the same answer, you're very confident. If you get a different answer, you have to think, well, really, what was the reason my answers differed? Thank you. And that's exactly what happened here. So the data showed one thing. They did a sensitivity analysis, and it completely showed the opposite answer. Thank you, Eve. So next, we're going to circle back to artificial intelligence. 
AI is a powerful modern computing tool that helps inform complex decision-making. It's been investigated for many applications related to infertility and ART, and in some clinics is already being deployed in a practical level. This month, uh, Latiri and McDonald from Seattle Reproductive Medicine published an article entitled AI and IVF, Computer Decision Support System for Day-to-Day -day Management of Ovarian Stimulation During In Vitro the objective was to describe a computer-based algorithm designed to inform IVF ovarian stimulation management. The algorithm learned from 2,600 patient IVF cycles. The data were then verified in 556 unique separate cycles. They used six different models of predictive analysis with inputs including estrogen, follicle size, day of stimulation, and the dose of FSH. The algorithm then evaluated four clinical decision points made by the doctor. When to stop the stem, when to trigger or cancel, how many days until follow-up, and how to adjust medications. The authors found that the AI system had an 82 to 96 percent ability to predict the outcomes as made clinically by the physicians. This was higher for when to stop stem and when to trigger, and it was at the lower end for how many days until follow-up and how to adjust the medications. They concluded the AI system offered a high degree of agreement with evidence-based clinical decisions made by their doctors and may have an ability in the future to help optimize clinical decisions. The commentary from Babayev from Northwestern notes that ultimately we want to obtain AI that can predict live birth, since that's the true outcome that we ultimately care about. While this model learned to predict clinicians' clinical management decisions fairly well, the next step would be to see if it can better predict or change management decisions for physicians. Similar to the articles Kurt already reviewed, this was very fascinating, and I think in medicine that we're all going to have to be comfortable with understanding and critically evaluating machine learning and AI research moving forward. The final article in Assisted Reproduction is an article entitled Short-Term Weight Gain and Live Birth Among Women with Unexplained Infertility and Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Undergoing Ovulation Induction. This article is by Dr. Vitek, first author, and Dr. Legro, senior author from Penn State Hershey. The effect of obesity and reproduction is quite controversial. While often studied, there are a number of gaps. Generally, and I mean generally, without specifics, it is thought that obesity can lead to a reduction in fecundity and a longer time to pregnancy. It is not clear if this is due to the association of ovulation and obesity or directly related to obesity itself. This study looked at a specific aspect of the question, the association of obesity and infertility treatment. The objective of this study was to determine if short-term weight gain was present in women with either unexplained infertility or with polycystic ovary syndrome and if short-term weight gain that was associated with treatment was related to successful treatment and delivering a live birth. This is a secondary analysis from the Reproductive Medicine Network trials, Amigos and PPCOS2. The Amigos trial enrolled women with unexplained infertility and randomized them to either letrozole, clomid, or gonadotropin use. In PPCOS2, women diagnosed with PCOS were randomized to either clomid or letrozole. So in this study, they evaluated about 850 women with unexplained infertility and about 700 women with PCOS. The findings were really quite interesting. The main finding compared weight at the entrance of the study to weight after treatment. 
and what was found that women with unexplained infertility had no change in their weight over the course of treatment. But conversely, women with PCOS had approximately a 2.2 kilogram increase in their weight. And this was especially evident in women who already had a high BMI or if women that had greater than three cycles of treatment. Interestingly, or perhaps reassuringly, this increased weight gain with treatment was not associated with altering the chance of live birth. So this begs a very important question. Does fertility treatment affect a woman's weight? Note this is the inverse of the question we usually ask, which is does a woman's weight affect her treatment success? So the answer is that fertility treatment does affect weight if you have PCOS, but not if you have unexplained infertility. By the way, it doesn't seem to differ whether a woman with PCOS was treated with Clomid or Letrozole. Now, this study cannot necessarily ascertain the aspects that resulted in women with PCOS that gained weight during treatment. As described by an accompanying reflection by Dr. Boots and colleagues, we can only speculate. It's possible that the stress of infertility may be um, the, the causative factor which increases weight gain, but of course we can't rule out the metabolic aspects of treatment as well. Remember, this seems to be confined to women with PCOS and not women with unexplained infertility, even though they were treated with the same drugs. At the very least, based on this intriguing data, we may need to change the way we approach women with PCOS attempting to get pregnant. While as a field, we've mainly focused on the question whether weight loss prior to treatment will improve success, and by the way, most recent data suggests that it may not be helpful, this trial should remind us to focus on women during treatment. We should help women maintain their weight and reduce their stress because it's good medicine, even if it doesn't directly result in higher pregnancy rates. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can't help but wonder, going back to progesterone, whether or not once a woman ovulates who's never ovulated and she is now feeling that progesterone in the luteal phase, perhaps for the first time, with progesterone being an appetite stimulant, if that's more of a potent appetite stimulant in someone who has not previously been exposed to progesterone. That's a really interesting theory that goes along with what you told us earlier. The theme of this podcast. <laughs> Anyhow, our next paper is uh, moving on to endometriosis. And this is fallopian tube endometriosis in women undergoing operative video laparoscopy and its clinical implications by McGinnis and others. This is a retrospective study of a group of women who underwent surgery for endometriosis over a three-year period. And a little bit of background is the mechanism of how endometriosis causes infertility is complex and not completely understood. The leading theory is retrograde menstruation with tissue implantation and continued biologic activity of this tissue outside of the uterus. The reported incidence of endometriosis in the fallopian tube ranges between 4 and 11%, and the authors questioned whether the incidence of microscopic tubal disease would actually be higher. And to date, the incidence of microscopic and macroscopic disease has not been questioned together in the same study. And so what the authors did in this study was they divided subjects into those that had a salpingectomy and those that did not have a salpingectomy. There were 185 patients in the study, and 88 had a salpingectomy, and 97 did not. What they found was that the incidence of macroscopic tubal endometriosis was 11% in the group that didn't have a salpingectomy, and in the group that had a salpingectomy, it was 12%. 
However, when the salpingectomy group had microscopic or pathologic evaluation, 42.5% of these patients were actually found to have microscopic evidence of disease. So what the authors concluded from this is that the incidence of microscopic tubal endometriosis was greater than what could be appreciated macroscopically. And I think what's really important about this is it raises the clinical question of tubal function in patients who have endometriosis. And should we be avoiding medical therapies like IUI that rely on fallopian tubes? And should we be thinking about moving straight to IVF in all patients who have endometriosis? I think the jury is still out on that, but just food for thought. Great. Thank you, Eve. And by the way, congratulations to your team at Northwestern for all the original research and commentaries. Thank you. So sticking with endometriosis, endometriosis remains a very significant disease from both societal and individual patient perspectives. The disease is often present even in adolescence and typically progresses for multiple years before getting diagnosed. So this month, Materi and colleagues from Rome, Italy, set out to evaluate the ultrasonographic presence of different forms of endometriosis in adolescents and associate it with their clinical symptoms. This was a retrospective study of 70 adolescents presenting for GYN evaluation over a five-year period. Pelvic ultrasound was obtained on every one of these patients as part of their evaluation. The ultrasound evidence of endometriosis uh, was seen more commonly in adolescents who had dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, heavy menstrual bleeding, and functional bowel symptoms. Dysmenorrhea was by far the most common complaint in patients who had ultrasound evidence of endometriosis, occurring in 86% of them, uh, versus 50% of patients without endometriosis complaining of dysmenorrhea. The authors conclude that medical professionals should be aware of the common prevalence of endometriosis in adolescent girls who present with GYN symptoms or complaints. Pertia and colleagues from France did the commentary on this article and noted that only 10% of these adolescents who presented actually presented with a referral specifically for dysmenorrhea, but 55% of them were found to have dysmenorrhea on specific questioning. This suggests either that patients may think dysmenorrhea is a normal part of adolescence, or that physicians could do a better job of elucidating that history when patients present to a GYN clinic. Either way, this study reinforces that physicians who care for adolescent girls need to be aware of the symptoms of endometriosis. The study also reinforces a significant body of emerging literature that suggests we can use non-invasive transvaginal ultrasound findings to diagnose endometriosis without surgery. So Kurt, on to you for our next article. I'm excited by the next article under a category called environment. As an epidemiology geek, it's always lovely to see environmental studies. This study by first author Dr. Ingle and senior author Dr. Meeker from the Department of Environmental Health and Sciences in Ann Arbor, Michigan, present a study entitled, A Personal Exposure to Power Frequency Magnetic Fields with Pregnancy Outcomes Among Women Seeking Fertility Treatments in a Longitudinal Cohort Study. This intriguing epidemiologic study is the first to investigate potential relationships of personal exposure to magnetic fields with pregnancy as an outcome. As described in the title, this is a longitudinal, preconceptual, prospective study. Magnetic fields are ubiquitous in our environment, and they are often formed by extremely low-frequency power sources, such as electrical grids, appliances, or telecommunication devices. 
There is some evidence that magnetic fields can affect sperm quality, but as of today, there's really no direct evidence of an effect on pregnancy outcomes, including miscarriage, preterm birth, birth defects, let alone fertility. So subjects in this trial were recruited as part of the Environment and Reproductive Health Study, or the EARTH study. This is a very visible and highly productive NIH-funded study with collaboration from Michigan and Harvard. Studies are recruited from Mass General Hospital Fertility Center, approximately 160 couples undergoing IVF and 120 couples undergoing IUI were prospectively evaluated. Women wore personal exposure monitors continuously for 24-hour time periods. These time periods were separated by a few weeks for up to three consecutive cycles. Where these women spent their time, where they traveled, was also recorded with a diary. These were relatively typical infertility patients with about half having unexplained infertility. The majority of time was spent inside the house or inside work or school with about three hours in transit each day. There was a relatively large spread in quantitative exposure ranging from units from about 1 to 15, with the highest exposures found in women who changed their environments often or who had greater transit, for example, those that moved around more than four times a day. Reassuringly, Overall, there was no statistical significant association between magnetic field exposure and treatment outcomes in either the crude or adjusted models. Now, some of the associations were positive, some were negative, some dependent on whether exposure was measured using mean or median, but overall, there was no discernible obvious effect. This also included the risk of miscarriage, which has previously been found in a smaller study. However, as reviewed in an elegant reflection by Dr. Agor, We and Bertrand, while these results are reassuring, they certainly cannot answer the question definitively that magnetic fields do not affect pregnancy outcomes. This reflection appropriately describes the many strengths of the study, as well as some of the limitations, including the fact that partners were not considered in this evaluation. Despite these limitations, this is clearly the most advanced study to date from an ongoing group of clinicians and epidemiologists studying environmental exposure and reproductive outcomes. Really fascinating stuff. It's nice to see a well-conducted negative study in the literature rather than just alarmist anecdote that we usually see in the lay press. This next article looks at couples pre-pregnancy body mass index and time to pregnancy among those attempting to conceive their first pregnancy by Zhang and others from China. This is a retrospective cohort that evaluated time to pregnancy. And this study used data from eligible couples participating in the National Free Preconception Checkup Study, which is a nationwide population-based Chinese government-supported cohort aiming to reduce the risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. The study took place over a three-year time period from January 2015 all the way through December 2017, and the main outcome they measured was time to pregnancy. So all couples enrolled were actively trying to conceive and were not pregnant at the time of initial study enrollment. Women who were age 20 and older with regular menstrual cycles were included. At initial intake, all subjects had physician or at initial intake, all subjects had a clinic measurement of height and weight taken, and they answered multiple questions regarding their occupation, lifestyle factors, medical history, and medications. Women were tested up front for infectious diseases, including gonorrhea and chlamydia, and a baseline ultrasound was performed. Couples were followed every three months for pregnancy with phone interviews, and 2.3 million couples were included, so a giant study. 
Cox models were used to estimate the fecundability odds ratio in corresponding 95% confidence intervals by couples' different pre-pregnancy BMI levels compared to a normal BMI. Now, interestingly, they use Chinese criteria for BMI. So in this scale, underweight is less than 18, normal is 18.5 to 23.9, overweight is 24 to 27.9, and obese is greater than 28. So this differs slightly from American criteria. They excluded 375,000 couples who conceived during that first month of enrollment. And at the end of one year, an additional 63% of couples achieved pregnancy. What they found was that underweight patients had a 7% lower chance of achieving pregnancy for a fecundability odds ratio of 0.93%. Overweight patients had a 5% lower chance and obese patients had a 20% lower chance. And none of those confidence intervals crossed one. A similar finding of a 5% reduction in pregnancy rates was observed in underweight males with a fecundability odds ratio of 0.95, but was not observed in overweight and obese males. And interestingly, when they analyzed couples, the effect of female weight was much more significant than the effect of male weight. What they found was that the optimal BMI associated with the shortest time to pregnancy in women was a BMI between 20.6 and 23. And in males, they found a slightly heavier BMI was found to be advantageous with optimal BMI 22.7 to 27.7. And for these couples who had optimal BMI range, the time to pregnancy was 3.4 cycles. They then analyzed different weight combinations in couples. Pregnancy rates were reduced by a clinically meaningful increment among couples who were both underweight and obese compared to those with normal BMIs. Interestingly, when the female was normal weight and the male was overweight, the fecundability odds ratios was highest, and the fecundability odds ratio was lowest for obese females with underweight males. This is one of the first studies that looks at the effect on male BMI and time to conception. I think the findings are very clinically applicable in counseling for prevention. And I think perhaps as we are seeing more patients for egg freezing for deferred reproduction, we can use this as an opportunity for education on optimizing preconception health. So Eve, there's a whole lot of work on what's the optimal weight preconception, but can we actually tell people to change their weight to get into the optimum? I mean, I think that's just such a loaded question. Weight loss is so complex and multifactorial that I think the key is really prevention of obesity from a young age. Yeah, I agree. I think telling them, you know, six months before their egg retrieval might not make a difference. I agree. All right, I think we're now we're going on to mental health. Micah. Uh, great. Thank you, even Kurt. So stress is a very controversial topic within the mental health professionals that provide reproductive care, whether it's just something that's associated with infertility or whether it's something that can actually affect outcomes. But on a different topic, specifically, there's a limited data on whether the indicated reason for doing IVF is linked to perceived patient stress. And so this is what Adelaide and colleagues from UCSF try to address this month in the article entitled Differences in Perceived Stress During Ovarian Stimulation Between Women with Infertility and Those Who Are Pursuing Oocyte Cryopreservation. So this was a prospective questionnaire study that was nested into the LOVE trial, a randomized control trial called Learning from Online Video Education. 
And patients were given the option to fill out a questionnaire. And about two-thirds of the patients, or 240, completed this questionnaire. IVF infertility patients were compared with oocyte cryopreservation patients. They found that infertility patients were older and had a higher income level, while IVF patients had a higher stress score pre-treatment than oocyte cryopreservation patients. This value lowered post-treatment. The two groups did not differ in their post-treatment test scores. The authors concluded that perceived stress is higher pre-treatment in IVF patients compared to cryopreservation patients, but stress was not associated post-treatment nor was there any association of stress scores and fertility outcomes, including oocyte yield. Lawson from Northwestern, who publishes extensively on fertility and stress, commented on this article and said that the lack of the ability to control for several potential confounders, such as BMI smoking and ovarian reserve, which may confound perceived stress and outcomes, she agrees with the authors, though, that stress is not associated with success in ART treatment, but rather it's important for us to assist our patients with their overall well-being when they're facing infertility. We have one article in the reproductive science section. I have Dr. Lee, first author, and Dr. Wee, senior author, from the Department of Pathology and Obstetrics Gynecology, again, from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. They described... HMGA2-mediated tumor genesis through angiogenesis in lyomyoma. We can all appreciate that lyomyoma is a very prevalent disease, and we also appreciate the great variety in its presenting symptoms. Some women present asymptomatic, while others present with fertility issues, miscarriage, bleeding, or even bulk symptoms. I've always been intrigued why there's such a heterogeneity in the disease. Recently, Exclusive mutations have been described in uterine lyomyoma, and this genetic heterogeneity may allow identification of different fibroid subtypes. For example, fibroids with a mutation MED12 tend to develop multiple small fibroids, while those with a mutation in the HMGA2 system tend to have larger fibroids with increased growth. The goal of this study was to evaluate the role of HMGA2 in promoting uterine lyomyoma. This translational study evaluated vessel density and angiogenic factors in lyomyoma cells in vitro, exploring vessel formation induced by HMGA2 overexpression. The main finding of this paper suggests that HMGA2 overexpression can play a role in tumorogenesis by promoting angiogenesis, consequently increasing vascularity allowing the tumor to grow to a larger size. The data reveal that HMGA2 lyomyoma have a higher density of both thin and thick-walled vessels, which likely contribute to tumor growth and disease burden. The authors demonstrate a direct role on angiogenesis and suggest that inhibiting angiogenesis or targeting vessel formation in fibroids with HMGA2 may be beneficial as a therapeutic option. This very elegant research is opening doors to the fact that all fibroids might not be the same, may not grow via the same mechanism, and may not require treatment in the same way. This opens the door for more personalized and directed therapy for women with fibroids. Clearly, one size does not fit all. Fascinating. And I think it also really bears further research on racial disparities, particularly in fibroids and different patterns among fibroid growth. 
I'm going to transition over to reproductive surgery. And this next article is fascinating. It's called The Evolution of Surgical Steps in Robotic-Assisted Donor Surgery for Uterus Transplantation, Results of the Eight Cases of the Swedish Trial with first author Mats Brandstrom. Since the reported birth of a healthy child from uterus transplantation in 2015, the number of reported births from clinical trials of transplants from deceased and living donors has been steadily increasing worldwide. Uterus transplant is still at a very early experimental phase, and it is thought that major developments will continue to make the process both safer and more efficient. The original trial used laparotomy for the donor surgery, and it was complicated, especially with dissection of the deep uterine veins. It has been proposed that the use of robotic-assisted surgical techniques in the living donor surgery are a better way to access the narrow spaces, such as the deep pelvis. For uterine transplant, the main challenge of using minimally invasive surgery is the complex approach required to obtain the graft with an adequate vascular pedicle, especially the uterine veins. So this study describes a prospective observational study by Brandstrom reporting their second trial of eight cases of uterine transplant using a well-developed robotic surgical-assisted approach. And what they did in this study was they demonstrate a step-by-step developmental approach to assess robotic-assisted donor hysterectomy. After the robotic surgery was completed, conversion to laparotomy was performed by extending to a full midline incision. The vagina was divided and a two-centimeter vaginal cuff was left on the specimen. Vascular clamps were placed to optimally harvest the proximal points of the utero-ovarian veins, the anterior portion of the iliac arteries, and the deep uterine veins. The uterus was removed through the abdomen. They did video recordings of the entire robotic procedure, and they analyzed after surgery to register the time of each of the defined steps. They described 12 separate steps in this paper. Steps 5, 6, and 7 were timed on each side, so really nine distinct steps, but 12 in all with bilaterality. Their protocol had a preset threshold that required conversion from robot to laparotomy after six hours. In the initial two surgeries, only six and seven of the 12 steps were completed during the six hours of robot time. In the last three cases, improvement in surgical skill and efficiency allowed the team to complete all 12 steps with the use of the robot. The total surgical time was 13 hours in the first case and 10 hours in the last case. There were two complications. One was pressure-related alopecia. The second was pyelonephritis. This was a really interesting and nicely written manuscript that meticulously describes each of the 12 steps, as well as the learning curve of this team in both active and passive surgical steps in the approach to robot-assisted laparoscopy for uterine artery transplantation. I think a fascinating and highly controversial topic that is gaining in widespread acceptance. Well, I think we're going to have to remind everybody this controversy, perhaps a rebroadcast of that Uterine Transplant Journal Club Global is a good idea. Finally, I want to remind our audience that there are video articles that are published in Fertility and Serility. One is titled Fluorescent Guided Management of Deep Endometriosis, and a second one titled Laparoscopic Metroplasty, Reconstructive Surgery for a Unicornuant Uterus with Non-Communicating Functional Uterine Horn. Obviously, these articles aren't conducive to discussing on a podcast, but I encourage you all to click on them and uh, view them. And I also want to thank Fertillian Cerulli for including these kind of articles as well.
So we've completed another table of contents, Micah and Eve. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you next month, and I hope that our audience will find this podcast useful. Thanks so much, Kurt, and thanks to our audience for listening. Thank you, Kurt. I look forward to next month and another round of great articles. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.